Hello, and welcome to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. Hey, everybody out there in Morbid Land. Hi. You guys, the war is over. The summer of, <laughs> the summer of civil war has ended. <laughs> but has it? <laughs> Never. Never. The Civil War 160th anniversary that doesn't get a Latin name nope. um, is is washing by and the world has, has moved on, but we have not. We will never uh, move on. I'll we're never. still reloading. No, no. But, yeah. uh, but did I watch Glory twice in the last 10 days? I might have. <laughs> I saw you. I saw you. I was concerned. <laughs> I know you were socially... <gasps> indoctrinating someone else yes i will see the movie <laughs> my husband had not seen it and i just uh i was i was living for the things that you and i had talked about in the patreon i hope i hope some of you tune into it because it's it might be one of my favorite ones we've done because it was really a deep dive it was hella organized it was we were like professional we were like the Union Army. We were fully stocked. We were supplied. We had a concentration of force. We, All the shoes. We had an agenda. We marched to Georgia. We did the thing. We did the thing. That was, that was fun. And it was also a, a change up because we weren't shading the whole time, which usually shading is fun. Yeah. More fun. Mild shade, honestly. Get we were just being sycophants, loving the hell out of this movie. Which is also fun. Um, yeah. But, but speaking of organizing... Let's talk about oh. labor. <laughs> Let's not forget labor history. Y'all. Let's not forget the history of labor. Yeah. So I wanted to, before I really dive into today's subject matter, I wanted to acknowledge the upcoming holiday, Labor Day here in the States. This is an extremely important day that acknowledges the achievements and sacrifices of the working men and women of the United States of America. Mm-hmm. It's a very big day. And I think it's... Uh, I don't think it's taught very well, po- possibly in part because it's not happening during the actual school year. So it, it's kind of this yeah. weird side holiday that I didn't really know much about until I got older. And I didn't know until far more recently uh, how old it is. It actually, yeah. uh, the first one was 1882 in New York City, because, mm. you know, God knows our labor situation wasn't so great in, <laughs> in 1882. Um, but slowly more years would follow. And then mm-hmm. it was in 1894 that President Grover Cleveland officially made it a law that the first Monday in September of each year would be a national holiday recognizing these achievements, which is incredible. Thanks, but, Grover. Thanks, Grover. <laughs> but you're right. We don't talk about it in our society. It's bizarre because it affects everyone. Yeah. No one isn't affected by work. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, you know, we're living in a world where we're dealing with the gig economy and the labor standards that we've known for decades are kind of, you know, needing to be reexamined, one would argue. Of course, minimum wage is always something to be. Re- but we don't we, the reason we have minimum wage, the reason we have a, an eight hour workday is because of the unfortunate sacrifice of many people who were too young to work or yes. worked in horrible conditions. Yes. But we don't we don't commemorate this history it, like like it's done in other countries, I think, because it has a socialist taste. And we will definitely, definitely get into that. <laughs> but I felt that it would be fitting that we do our own recognition of these sacrifices, you and I, Luke, by sure. telling the story of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. This will definitely be a two-parter. And today we're going to focus on the factory itself, 
the struggles of the workers and learn why this fire was sadly an inevitability due to years of the owners neglecting the needs of their workers. Next week, we'll really get into the horrors of the day. That's going to be a rough episode. So, you know, bear with us. Um, We'll talk about its aftermath and then its lasting legacy, which is an incredibly important piece of this story. So let's begin by just establishing, for those who don't know, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire was one of the most horrific industrial accidents in the history of the United States labor force Mm. and still is the deadliest in the history of New York City. In terms of workplace tragedies, obviously 9-11 would eclipse that. In terms of New York history... And and really what's sickening as I as I did a very deep dive on this the past few weeks, there's so many similarities in terms of building code and, and mm-hmm. fireproofing and not fireproofing. And that it's it actually has um I'm feeling a little PTSD-ish, I gotta be honest. The stories I have some uh, very disturbing similarities. And of course, we're right up on the next anniversary of 9-11 as well. So I've mm-hmm. I've been in my feelings a bit, Luke. <laughs> they certainly do rhyme a lot of the same algebra and like yeah. un- unpacking someone's fate that day. Yes. Uh, the big difference, obviously, is that, um, you know, you will certainly, Luke, you especially because you've studied this so much, you'll recognize yep. some of the same issues and concerns that came up in the WTC building mm-hmm. after the fact when they did the uh, the 9-11 report. Um, but this story obviously is far more about willful neglect versus yes. uh, just getting away some th- with some things here and there with the building of the WTC. And obviously, it's a terrorist attack. It's a very different kind of thing. So... This nightmare took place in Greenwich Village on Saturday, March 25th, 1911, and resulted in the deaths of 146 garment workers, 23 of which were men, and 123 were women, half of which were teenage girls, the youngest being only 14 years old. Mm. This completely, and I mean completely, preventable tragedy would ultimately have a tremendous impact on workers' rights, forever Mm. changing the way factories would operate in this country to this very day. So right out the gate, thank you to these men and women. Their loss will never be forgotten because, my God, what they've done for the rest of us, I, I feel nothing but the most solemn gratitude to these people. So let's set the scene. It's New York City. It's the turn of the century. Teddy Roosevelt's alive. Uh, What is it? William Taft is in office? Oh, yeah. Get out your hair rats and your derbies, kids. Because we're traveling to the 1900s. We are mid-gilded age here. Yes. Oh, yes. It is a lavish time. An Edwardian change-up. Oh, please. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. A lavish time for the New York City elite. On the eve of the Titanic. Oh, yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, it was a great time for the elite. It had been going strong since the 1890s at this point. Awesome to be rich. Not so great to be working class or less. No, the gay (laughs) 90s were not gay if you were poor. (laughs) They were like, "Ah." Uh, 
And for those perhaps that do not know why it's called the Gilded Age, uh, we go back to your buddy Samuel Clemens, aka yes. Mark Twain. He's the one who actually coined that phrase, of course. That's right. Gilded, meaning, oh, it's gilded and glittering on the outside, but underneath it's rotting, festering fucking garbage. <laughs> yeah. You're painting guilt over rot. Yeah. Basically, moral rot social economic yes and this is where that phrase how the other half lives comes into play Mm -hmm. as well Uh, a young man by the name of jacob jacob reese a photographer of the day did a huge photo essay on just the tenements and the horrors of what the poor were going through so versus you look at these incredible you know you don't have to look farther than Newport, Rhode Island to see these yeah. relics that pay homage to the opulence of that time period and how fucking right. over the top it was. Because <laughs> it Considering how low people lived. Yeah, exactly. Yes. The gulf is massive. Yes, and as we've said before, we're, we are in a, a potential guild, second Gilded Age right now with this huge disparity, but we're not yeah. quite there. That was... A time. <laughs> so, as we uh, as we've talked about before on this podcast, this we are on the really flying through the industrial revolution at this point, the nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was pivotal in the history of labor. It is a moment that brought many advantages to our daily lives, uh, but also at a tremendous cost. We lose a lot of humanity. Once we industrialize and no greater example of that is the creation of the factory and factory work where you Mm -hmm. no longer are a person. You're a piece of a bigger machine. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. Super bummer. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, the odds are, you know, if you're poor and especially if you're an immigrant and you have you're coming to this country with nothing more than the clothes on your back and not a single skill to be had, chances are really good that you're going to work in a factory. And the life of your average factory worker by 1911, it sucked. It sucked bad. It was not not a good time. <laughs> and so far in our in our London Stinks episodes and our DC Stink episodes, we discussed really the impact on the environment and the overpopulation that would cause terrible illnesses. Um, But this episode is really about what were the actual dangers of the jobs themselves. Right. So the, the irony thinking back to like the cholera episode, the people who actually did the dirty jobs kind of did better than some of the other people. (laughs) Yeah. They weren't working with big turbines and machines that could take a finger. No, It's like, Oh, I'm not getting cholera. Cause I've had these tiny micro exposures. Great. Versus these people are like, Oh, I don't have shoes and I'm walking through glass basically. Good oh luck to me. Oh, and I'm seven. <laughs> oh my God. It's a real raw deal. It's the rawest of raw deals. So people do this type of work purely out of desperation, right? This is, yes. they don't require a skill set. There's no apprenticeships or education required, which means anyone can get a job and eventually anyone would get a job, including women. Women are now Mm. part of the labor force. This is a big moment. So exciting for them. Hooray! This is exactly (laughs) what we dreamed of. Yes. Financial independence. Security. Money. (laughs) (laughs) Not enough money. 
So when we think of the earliest factories, we are thinking of uh, sweatshops, really. Yes. And that is not what the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory really was. There's, it's sort of the level up from what we think of as a traditional sweatshop. When you think sweatshop, mm-hmm. what are the images that come to mind for you, Luke? You think about, unfortunately, uh, underdeveloped countries um, mm-hmm. uh, in parts of Asia, Africa, where, you know, it's usually a Western-owned company and there's young people working in a hot, cramped environment. Yep. You know, it's like, no, the lights are the lights are flickering. Always it's dark, horrible. always sweaty. Those are the two things I always think of. Right. Certain parts of New York City and Chinatown, mm-hmm. they still exist, you know, and it's like, oh, this, don't buy this shirt because it was made in a sweatshop. That's like the modern. Yes. And if we're being real, very few of us own anything that isn't somehow connected to dangerous labor. Let's be honest with ourselves. Unless you are someone who is being super fair trade conscious, which is very expensive and very hard to do, the odds are you are part of the problem. Which I fully admit that I am. I'm not proud You're of it. You're on Amazon, Timu, or mm-hmm. Wish.com. You're <laughs> part of the problem. And what's interesting is even then, you would see activists saying that mm. to people. Being like, how can you keep buying clothing from these people? Look what they're doing to their workers. And so we're starting to already see these glimmers, these whispers of socialism. Unions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's dangerous, friends. It's dangerous. God forbid we are equal in any way. <laughs> I'm scared that we're talking. I don't. I'm. I, the, <laughs> God knows who's listening. Probably the 25 people who normally listen. <laughs> You're like clicking the line. Oh my God. No. Was that? Was that? <laughs> Hello? Hello? Watergate? Are you there? Deep throat? Who is that? Deep throat? Is that you? Who's listening? Um. <laughs> Follow the money. So, yes, completely right. The earliest factories are disgusting, unventilated spaces using coal for heating. And not good. No, dirty, dirty. We are talking zero regulation. Where literally you hear these crazy stories of like five year olds given the jobs to reach into the part of the machine that only a child's fingers could fit in. And oh, they lost their hand. (laughs) That part. You have the tiny hands, tiny body. You can crawl into these crevices. Mm Yeah. So by the time we get to the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, business owners have actually found it is far more profitable and you can get away with a few more things regulatory wise by using these new mid-rise buildings. And Mm. why, you may ask? Because it's better for the workers? No, 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 no. It's because you can jam more people and sewing machines and materials in there. (laughs) And it makes sense because we know that New York and Chicago buildings are an embodiment of capitalism in creating real estate that's vertical. You know, you you have a piece of land and, oh, you think it's two or four, two or three stories? Mm, Try 10, 20. And you think about that fact, Luke. That's a a great point. By 19... (laughs) 1900, when these guys moved into that building, I think in 1902, mm-hmm. New York is full. <laughs> we are yeah. full. We have no more room, you guys. At capacity. So we got to go up, right? Yeah. It's already yeah. begun. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, at the same time as shitty as you'll learn the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory is, would you rather be in a 
mid-rise building with these big windows and stuff and you get to ride an elevator and wear nice work clothes? Or are you hiding in a tiny little tenement space with no windows and no air and babies? (laughs) In the upward rising cathedral of commerce. You know, that sounds like a, that sounds aspirational. It sounds exciting if I'm an immigrant, if I'm a young lady. And exactly, a lady. I want to be treated like a lady, a respectable woman, mm-hmm. right? Because prior to that, a working woman is, you know, a sex worker, usually. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, look at us go. That's right. Now, before we go any deeper into the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, let's ask the question that's on everybody's mind. What the fuck is a shirtwaist? <laughs> And how do you wear a triangle shirt? Right? Why is it a triangle also? <laughs> how did it cover this, this is rarely discussed. <laughs> so a shirt waist was basically just another name for a woman's button-down blouse that you would tuck into a skirt. So we mm. have moved into these two-piece outfits, which is very exciting, you guys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, images that come to mind are the Gibson girl. Right. Mm. That is the modern woman of the age. That is who you want to be. That's what you want to look like. Any proper Edwardian woman, any famous Edwardian woman of the day, it's giving me all the Howard's end energy. (laughs) I fucking love that movie. Gorgeous. Yeah. No, everything is starched and like straight and pinned and your your waist is cinched. Yes. But at the same time, we're we're moving out of, and this is me doing my theater costume nerdiness we're moving sure. out of this repressive victorian everything is cinched and super yes. fucking tight and uptight and tiny and now it's like oh my god i'm wearing a button-down blouse and i can breathe and ooh, mm-hmm. this is kind of like a men's shirt i feel mm. empowered yeah. and it was literally designed to be more like a men's shirt It is so much more liberating than those insane Victorian bodices that these women had been squeezing themselves into. And it was still beautiful. It looked very, very classy. And it's the boyfriend shirt of 1910. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) On a woman, it looks incredible. Style it. Since, you know, you you tuck it in a little bit, make it look good. Blouse it ever so slightly. I love that. That's perfect. And and it was so versatile. Um, you know, you don't have to spend this fortune on one dress that's going to look the same every single day. All of a sudden, oh, I can mm. interchange my blouse with a couple of different skirts. That's awesome. Right. And the blouses themselves could have variation of sleeve, embroideries. The quality of fabric could vary depending, of course, on what you could afford, linen, cotton, etc. Um and while it started as a wealthy wealthy woman's trend, as all fashion trends normally do, it was quickly adopted by this new burgeoning class of working women because it just made life so much easier sitting at a desk or standing, in some cases, depending on the work and, and the factory, with a fully tight fucking Victorian course. It sounds like hell versus you've got this loose, airy blouse in this hot environment it must have felt like Mm -hmm. such a fucking gift and what's also really unique about the shirtwaist is because it's being created in a factory this is not a tailored garment it is what you'd call ready to wear 
which is what all of our clothes are now. They're ready to wear. If you want to get it tailored, you can. But yeah. the assume the assumption is this is like, you know, this is a size. Good luck. Hope you fit in it. <laughs> yeah, this is a huge departure. Huge, which makes clothing affordable for everyone. So you could have a few blouses and still, you know, be a working class chick. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. So the shirtwaist is far more important than I think we give it credit for. And it sadly, its name is sullied horribly by this event. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Because it really well, thank you for clearing that up. Oh my God. Yeah. And in so many ways, I've seen um historians and some of the things I've been reading, they compare this as like a symbol of the progressive nature of these decades. Cause it comes out in like the 1890s mm-hmm. and it's super popular through the you know, the 1910 era and this is when women are really starting to fight for equal rights they're fighting for a space in the workplace they're trying to get mm-hmm. the right to vote so it's really oh i'm just i'm going off <laughs> well i love it it's that's an interesting thing women's women's fashions in the 19th and 20th centuries are fascinating oh, yeah. in the 19th century they try to make a little bit of a chip you know with the bloomer mm-hmm. and the bifurcated garments like the turkish pants that um the, what's her name is wearing in Downton Abbey, oh, the Sybil. daughter Sybil, Sybil, and um, you know that kind of that has this moment it flares out, you know, and there's like there's fun jackets and blazers, and, and it's all in re- reverence or opining or equating with men, not because they're jealous, mm-hmm. they are partially, but it's also we're the same as men. We need to move like men. Do. Yeah. So the shirtwaist is a great bridge Completely. to. You know, you a couple of decades later, Marlena Dietrich and Catherine Hepburn are slacking it up, you know? Oh, yeah. So it's pretty our, cool. sh- our skirts get short in the 20s. Oh, yeah. It's a fun... I love fashion history. It's really, really fascinating, specifically women's fashion, because it is very much the story of our evolution in terms of our freedoms and equality and stuff like that. But... That's right. So... I'm sure many of you prior to this didn't really know anything about the shirtwaist. So it would surprise you perhaps that this industry was humongous at the turn of the century. And not just in New York, in Boston, Philly, really anywhere where a major garment industry would have existed. And just to get a sense of the size, in Manhattan, there were over 450 textile factories that employed upwards of like 40,000 garment workers. Again, incredible. Yeah, incredible. And largely, again, immigrants and often usually German or Russian Jews or Italians. Those are your main mm. garment workers at this time. Now, do these folks have a touch more skill than usual, like needle and thread, you know, sort of construction, construction, construction of garments? So, yeah, you have a few different jobs. You have your seamstresses, those are the people who are actually working on the section that's going to be sewing machines. um, And they're the ones who are actually putting the garment together. But on the other side, you have the cutters, the people who are taking the, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not a blueprint. It's the... Yeah, it's like the forms or the patterns. patterns. They're taking the patterns and they're cutting the actual fabric Mm -hmm. into Mm -hmm. the pattern to get it then to the seamstress. So yeah. There's Stanley Tucci. Yeah, that's probably... The the cutting is probably the least skilled. Um, Yeah, you're measuring. Yeah, you do need to have some sort of uh, abilities to do sewing. Have you ever worked a sewing machine? It's it's not intuitive. I'll tell you that. It's not... That's not my favorite. No, thing. it is a learned skill for sure. It's a scary thing. <laughs> um, oh yeah, I've gotten myself many times using a sewing machine. But honestly, in that tradition, like all my Italian 
relatives of my grandmother's generation. Phenomenal seamstresses. Excellent. Mm -hmm. So it's these, it must have been that this German, Russian, Jewish, Italian thing, this is just a, a skill that was very much uh, inherited. Yeah. So, and it was a, whatever they had been doing back there, they were able to actually bring it here. So uh, you'll find that a lot of the people who also own these factories have similar backgrounds as well. So, right. It's like Jerry Seinfeld's father. Exactly. In the show. In the show. I cut fabric for so-and-so for 45 years. Exactly. <laughs> but all of this in mind, as big of an industry as it was, like any business that's built purely on a fad, it was precarious. At any moment, the trend for the season could change, bankrupting the business forever. There was a high season and a low season, which is also not great for a business. It would slow down the influx of money. You'd have too much actual goods in the warehouse. And mm -hmm. uh, again, with no, we don't have labor laws and unionizations. You just fire a bunch of people. There's no job protection yeah. at all. There's a whole boatload of immigrants coming behind yeah, them. Who cares? Who cares what happened to them? Maybe they'll starve in the winter. I don't care. <laughs> so I don't know. Capitalism. I don't know. Capitalism, I guess. So this made the business incredibly competitive and made those who owned the businesses completely dedicated to squeezing out every fucking penny they could as long as they could, no matter if it may cost anyone who worked for them. It attracted just the worst kind of fucking greedy monsters. Right. Two of them were Isaac Harris and Max Blank, the men who founded and owned the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. <laughs> it's no secret that the bad guys in this labor story or in any labor story are the factory owners. They did everything they could to maximize profit at the cost of mm -hmm. human comfort and safety, which is insane because they themselves were immigrants. So you would think there would be this kinship of some kind of, mm -mm. no, it was more like, no, nope. it's more. Get behind me, bitch. Exactly. I'm here first. I won. Figure it's it out. That. I'm Republican now. Deal it's with it. So much that. <laughs> well, I did it the right way. It's that vibe. Yeah. <laughs> it's horrible. And I think as we, as you have been intimating, this is all just, you know, as we, it's very hot to say late stage capitalism, blah, blah, blah. But this is what it is. It's that competition, you know, and it's who gives a shit about you. Let me maximize my profit center. Yeah. So this isn't a new story. <laughs> In case mm -hmm. anybody was wondering. <laughs> Yeah, despite their own humble beginnings, they very quickly viewed their own workers as insignificant and completely replaceable. There was one thing that I read which really fucked me up, and they didn't say it. It was another factory owner talking about uh, fire safety issues in a factory that had had a fire. He apparently just kind of shrugged and said, let them burn. No. Yeah. Like that's these are the people we're dealing with. They do not care at all. <laughs> so let's talk about what it's like to work in the shirtwaist factory industry. So again, sweatshop tenements, far more unsafe in many, many ways, but this isn't great either. Beginning with pay. Uh, it varied a bit depending on your skill level, like you were mentioning, Luke, some of these people did have skills, what exactly your job was and exactly what year 
it was that you were working in because there were mm -hmm. gives, gives and gets. So it's hard to like really get a full sense of what was the average salary because, yeah. you know, it's, 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 it's tricky. But what sure. I can tell you is looking at an account from one woman, uh, her name was Pauline Newman and she was actually a union organizer for the garment industry. Mm -hmm. She started at the shirtwaist company, the triangle shirtwaist factory when she was eight so this was early. This was before mm. some of those child labor laws had really taken effect. But also mm -hmm. it was apparently very common if there were children working on the floors. These places, they just quickly like throw them in like a, a box or something and hide them if there were inspections. Right. Just like roll up the roll up the carpets, like, you know, <laughs> do this whole montage. Just, I'm imagining them just like, like pausing like a mannequin, like seeing if they could get away with it. <laughs> no, 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 that's not. That's not a person. Put them in, put them in an executive jacket, like just two, two kids on top of each other, six foot tall. Okay. No, that's a really good idea. I bet that worked. So <laughs> Pauline Newman at eight, it was 1900. She earned a dollar 50 a week. That's low. That's incredibly low. That's very low. And so comparatively more experienced girls could make, I've seen anything from six to eight a week. Not good. A dollar a day is like the bare minimum at this point. And very rarely you'd have to be a, a truly exceptional worker. Possibly you have a very specific skill. You could make at most $12 a week, which again, right. not great, especially when you're working <laughs> six or seven days a week. I was going to say that's $2, that's $2 a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And workers did get paid for overtime, but it was their normal hourly rate. It's not like they were getting paid more for overtime. And right. for a little kid like Pauline was, you actually didn't get paid for overtime at all. <laughs> no, Which is God, no. horrible. <laughs> so no matter how many hours this eight-year-old works, sorry, baby. It's literal baby. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the really uh, fucked up thing with these factories, these garment factories. When you start working there, you're already operating at a loss because most of them expected you to bring your own needles, bring your oh. bring your own thread, sometimes bring your own iron, and in some of them, very early on in the business especially, your own fucking sewing machine. Bastards. Such bastards. So you got to pay to play. I'm doing all of it. Right. Shirt is by uh, Isaac and Harris, but the thread is by Lu Lucretia. Oh, yeah. Like, fuck you. Fuck you. And God forbid you make a fucking mistake because they would mm. instantly garnish your wages. Even if it was faulty equipment, their faulty equipment and not human error, they would garnish your wages. They would garnish your wages for anything at their whim tiniest of course like you were one minute late coming back from your timed bathroom break yes they timed bathroom breaks i cannot live under those conditions <laughs> no that's not after taco bell tuesday that's not it is, possible as they say it on south park it is the last bastion of american freedom and it, it should not be <laughs> messed with <laughs> i reserve the right to doom scroll on the toilet as long as thank I you <laughs> And yeah, in terms of hours, like I said, you're doing a six to seven day a week, 12 hour a day during your busy season. Uh, 
punishing schedule. By this point, uh, they had already worked out that you should get a 60-minute lunch break, which is so generous. Um, And the workers are under constant watch by the factory foreman to make sure there's no fraternizing, no talking. In the Triangle Shirtwaist factory specifically, they they weren't allowed to do anything. In some of these other places, apparently women would like sing songs to help pass the time and make the work go a little faster. Nope, not Mm -hmm. a triangle. No way. Um, Yeah. No fun allowed. Nothing. You put your head down and you be the good little machine that I need you to be. And that's it. You're not a person here. You're just not. And Newman once wrote in a letter. She said the following. All we knew was the bitter fact that after working 70 or 80 hours in a seven-day week, we did not earn enough to keep body and soul together. Which is just... You're eight! (laughs) Body and soul. You're eight! Come on, man! So, here's a few more things about working at Triangle Shirtwaist. It had these big, beautiful windows that made it boiling hot in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> the heat transfer. Have you ever been in like someone's fucking loft or artist studio with like big windows? I had a friend who lived in like an old abandoned piano factory, which yes, sounds cool, but holy fucking God. Giant rats. Awful. Yeah. It is so mm-hmm. hot in the summer and it is so fucking cold in the winter. Yep. It's just impossibly difficult to be there most of the year in New York. <laughs> it's inhospitable for a human. Yeah, yeah. In New York, where the weather goes so far one way or the other a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And of course, these windows, you can't open them. <laughs> no. So, you know, no breeze, no ventilation. Uh-oh. Uh, in addition mm-hmm. to the fact that women are sitting tightly packed next to one another at these wor- what you'd call a work bench. They have a chair, mm. but they set up the way they set that up was these long benches with a sewing machine station at each. And the women are just like on top of each other, basically. And it's row after row after row after row. So you have no space. You have no ventilation. By 1911, there were like roughly 300-ish, I think, women (laughs) working up against each other in this room. Mm -hmm. So it fucking stinks, right? It's sweaty. The air is stale. God knows what illnesses they were giving each other. Definitely at minimum tuberculosis. (laughs) And there's no sick days, right? That's not a thing. So you got to come in. You don't have a choice, right? Because not only will you not get paid for the day, you'll probably get fucking fired. Right. (laughs) God. And uh, yeah, they, there was a limit. There was a limit on bathroom breaks. Not only are they timed, you can't have a bunch. So like, the UTIs, my God, oh, I can't even God. imagine. In some stories, I, I don't think it happened at Triangle because they didn't have a lot of bathrooms. They didn't have enough bathrooms. But there are stories where in other places, women just literally would piss on the floor. Yeah. Like, what are you going to do? You know, like, I got it. Right. I got to go. It's just, it's right. disgusting. It's inhumane. Mm-hmm. And here's one of the most fucked up parts about working there. And this plays an incredibly important role in the story. The doors were always locked to prevent theft or workers taking breaks or union organizers coming in. Right. So before they were permitted to leave for the day, the foreman would check every single woman's bag. 
and then they would be allowed to go. And this is just so, so dehumanizing in so many ways. We don't trust you. Nope. You literally are meaningless to us. You are here for at our pleasure and nothing else. This is not a symbiotic relationship by any means. I own you. You belong to me. And you're not even a person. So fuck you. All right. Don't try to steal, bitch. Yeah, it's awful. And it's like, what am I going to steal? You made me bring everything from home. <laughs> yeah. It's my thread. I bought it. Fuck you. But kiddos, this is what unregulated business looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Uncontrolled. All these people who scream and cry about like, oh, government's in business too much. Get It's so hard to run a business. It's like, okay, but like they need if it's unchecked, to be there. If it's unchecked, the invisible hand will bitch slap you. Okay. These, that's basically what that's happens. That's basically what happens. These private abusive relationships between employers and employees. This is what this is. And this is the beginning of the labor movement as we understand it. These men had the money and the influence to push back hard against any government regulation at any turn. By 1911, when the fire happens, there were actually some regulations in place in terms of limiting child labor. There were way more laws mm-hmm. in place for that. There were a series of laws, particularly pertaining to women, about how many hours a day they were allowed to work and what time of day they could work, given to our our light, weaker constitutions. I was going to say, based on <laughs> They're mostly sexist thinking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there were women, though, who like needed the money and were pissed. Um, but the demand, demanding that I work at night, demanding that I work till midnight and I work in like the worst part of town. Yeah. I could argue that that's not in my best interest as a woman. Sure. Right. And should I be home in time to make dinner? All right, <laughs> theoretically. Uh, and the 60 minute lunch break that they did have at triangle was part of the, that regulation. Oh yeah. That, that was not out of the goodness of their heart. No. But even so, creating laws, creating regulations, and enforcing are two very different things. And with employees incapable of complaining without fear of repercussions, it's not a thing. There is no whistleblower stuff. (laughs) You you talk, you're dead. Bye. And -hmm. you'll never get a job at any other factory in this town. I'll fucking make sure of it. Right? (laughs) Uh. We know that that even still is an issue to this day, depending on the industry and the business. Uh, so so if you have no options, you have nowhere to go, who is keeping these workers safe? And the answer, unfortunately, is no one. Yeah, they have no advocate. They have no advocate. And the scary thing is most of the employees at Triangle didn't even fully understand just how much danger they were actually in. How they're being railroaded. They didn't yeah. know because they didn't know what was going on in the building itself. So let's talk about that for a minute. Isaac Harrison, Max Blank. They opened the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in 1900 on Wooster Street, where it stayed until 1902. And that is when they migrated the business to the ninth floor of this brand new ash building on the corner of mm. Washington Square in Greenwich Village. More space, of course, meant more workers, more sewing machines, which meant more product. This is great. And that more product means more money. So by 1910, the factory was producing more than 1,000 shirtwaists a fucking 
day. Isn't that amazing? That's a lot of needlework. A lot of boring fucking work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A lot of sewing. A lot of sewing. It had expanded its business to the eighth and tenth floors as well. The eighth was now mm. the cutting floor, essentially, the making of the patterns and stuff. And then the ninth floor was where all the sewing took place. And the tenth floor was mm -hmm. for the management, the higher ups, and often where you would find Harrison Blank. They would be known henceforth as the shirtwaist kings. <laughs> fuckers. <laughs> Those smart fucks. So much. <laughs> this business, I mean, really, this building made them millionaires. It also made the building owner, James J. Ash, very wealthy as well, because he's the one who's renting mm. out all these fucking floors to these businesses. It's a great mm -hmm. new way to make a profit as well. Own a building. The silver, the, the Silverstein of unions. Hello. <laughs> but part of that wealth was gained via money not being spent on things that are necessary. Mm -hmm. So <sighs> there were laws in place regarding the construction of buildings and fire safety at this point in history, which you would, be, you would be like, ah, it's like 1900. What is really around? There were laws <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And sadly, it would seem that the ash building itself violated a whole mess of them. So let's get into it, kids. To begin with, a mid-rise building like this one, which was about 135 feet tall. So she's big. She's not, a, she's not a small building. Um, no. They were actually originally built to be warehouses. So their only function was really to hold goods and then also have a human being passing in and out to show the goods or to ship things in and out of the warehouse, right? Right. The Holy Grail is there. Yeah, whatever you need. Sure. But it was meant to hold stuff, not hundreds of fucking people. Right, row. In other words, it was not designed for large groups of human beings in mind in terms of adequate space or safety. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's designed to hold stuff that could be easily right. accessed by only a couple of people at a time. Very different functions that require very different floor plans and very different safety measures. Sure. So that's scary right off the bat. It gets worse. One of the main things that a building needs, especially when there are hundreds of people working inside of it, are, of course, safe forms of egress, especially when there's an emergency. Each floor had about 10,000 square feet of space, which meant, as required by law, the building must have three staircases. Okay? Oh, geez. The yeah. ash had two. Bastards. And you may be saying, wait, but it's the law. How did they get away with this, you may ask? Well, the architect, Julius Frank, he apparently mm. convinced the building department inspector, Rudolf Miller, that while there would be no third internal staircase, there would be an external fire escape. And that could fulfill that requirement. And he said, you know what? I'll even make you happy by saying, okay, I won't let it end at the second floor. I'll make sure it goes out into this lovely courtyard below and it'll be great. Mm. surprise surprise he does not hold to that promise not only did it end on the second floor it ended over a skylight that would go into the basement what hold on to that for when we talk about what happened on the day you can mm. start to imagine how not good that is if the fire escape ends at the second floor and the thing below you is a skylight into the basement 
it's not good. So okay. in addition to that little oopsie doodle, uh, the mm. fire escape is not strong or well built. It was narrow. It is only accessible via one window on each floor. It was 16 by 18 inches and entirely vertical. So if I'm mm -hmm. a fucking Edwardian woman in my skirts, lace up boots and holy shit. Holy shit, this is going to be hard. It's going to be a slow and difficult descent out of this building. Right. Imagine Rose Dawson trying to descend a rickety iron ladder stair. Hello. <laughs> she had enough to deal with. <laughs> Rose Dawson. Like, what the fuck? I jumped to that. It's Rose Bucator doing Thank you okay. very much. <laughs> Hilarious. I love that you, you're not accepting her dead name. <laughs> <laughs> like, what's it? Where did I come from? Amazing. Hey. So, uh, so you would think that when the building was finished, the building inspector would, you know, stroll on by and be like, hey, wait a minute. This fire escape sucks. Well. But no, zero follow-up. And yeah. to make it even worse, this is one of the worst <laughs> things. I this is the this is the grandfather of the modern Department of Buildings. Get right? ready. A very beleaguered city organization. After the fire, Inspector Miller claimed that he was actually unsure whether or not he had ever granted approval of the Ash building even after the construction and before it was occupied. <laughs> so this building maybe was always illegal? And sadly, that is a reality that has is largely unchanged <laughs> so, in, in the city of New I'm York, so I would depressed. argue. Oh, God. Oh, so, but hey... It has four elevators, so the thinking was, who even fucking needs stairs? Elevators are... Made by Lord Otis. Ele elevators Otis elevator. are so much the thing of the moment. They are amazing and always your best option during an emergency, especially a fire. Now I'm flashing back to you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> don't... Guys, don't get in the guys, elevators. Don't get don't in the elevators. Don't ever do it. Don't ever do it. Sweat, sweat down the stairs. <sighs> And what about those stairs? Speaking of let's go down the stairs. I assume they're wide. They're well lit. Of course, Luke. Yes. <laughs> First of all, there's only one on Green Street and one on mm. Washington Street. Okay. That was, and mm. it, made a beautiful, it made for a beautiful facade. But let it be known, yeah. no factory worker is allowed in or out on the Washington side. Oh, no, 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 no. Your dirty, oh. gross asses are only allowed on the green side. Get your sweaty ass out on Reed yeah. Street. So on Green Street, you're going in and out of the building, either you're using the stairs or there are there are two passenger elevators and two freight elevators. You're using one of the elevators on that side. That's going to take you right on up. The other side, the Washington side, that is for management. Okay. And, oh. mm -hmm, and that door is mm -hmm. also locked. And only management has the keys. For the kings and court of shirtwaist. Mm -hmm. Royal. Indeed. And of course, these staircases are super dark, super winding, and mm -hmm. so narrow, they can only be navigated single file. Not good. No. Not good. So again, hundreds of people evacuating the building had clearly never been considered or seemingly a fucking concern. Right. And to make it worse, in an effort to save money... 
Ash himself, the owner of the building, decided that the main stairs don't need to go all the way up to the roof. Who gives a shit, man? Who's ever going to need to go on the roof? Certainly not my lowly, not my, not my woman slaves. They don't deserve a view. Well, and it's just this whole thing of like, who's using the building and who, who should be using what, like, you know, the, the building needs to be safe regardless of who's in it, whether it's poor people, broke people, rich people. It's one guy coming in and out of the warehouse once a day. Who cares? Make it safe for that guy. Right. It's like making one side of the street paved or one seat, one side unpaved. Like, well, everybody's going North of who's who matters. So who the fuck cares? Like, Oh, and I'm not even done. <sighs> There's so many more things wrong. This is so painful, especially knowing all of the, and this is a part of the reason why we have so many, so many of the building codes we have today. Yes, and and the, here's a funny, a funny thing that you wouldn't necessarily think of right off the bat, but Luke and I know an extraordinary yeah. amount about New York City building codes because we worked at the 9/11 Memorial, and it is a big part of the story, not just the day of, but the. Uh, the construction of the WTC. Yeah. The corporate greed of the original world trade yes. center was informed by the building codes of the 1960s. So this is, yeah, this, I hope it's having the same horrible effect on you as it has been on me. I'm, yeah, I'm feeling it now. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. You're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's happening. I'm not alone anymore. It's happening. So, I'm reaching for my squeegee. Not already. To get oh worse, so get ready. <laughs> One thing this building did have going for it. And this was marketed a lot was that this building was fireproof, in quotations. No, no, they didn't. Oh, they did, boo. No, they didn't. It was fireproof in that it was steel and therefore wouldn't sure. simply burn up like a wooden structure would, like a wooden sure. warehouse, right? Right. So it's fireproof, quotes, in the way that the Titanic is unsinkable. <laughs> Correct. This is the exceptionalism and hyperbole of the age, clearly. And we we won't go down this rabbit hole right now because there just isn't time. But again, if you know anything about 9-11 and what happened to steel on 9-11, it will weaken and it will bend. Yes. And so if that is also what's running through the floors of your building, it's going to struggle. <laughs> and if the building's structure is imperiled, God help any people. Who are in said structure. Correct. They're long gone. Correct. And again, similar 9-11, lots of paper in the building, right? It's a, it's an office space. Yes. This is All that paper. times a billion. Because this right. is Bolts of this is just endless scraps of fabric, wood tables, wood doors. It's just wood on wood on wood on paper yeah. on paper on fabric on oh my God. It's just like literally exploding spools of it thread. Is kindling. Yeah. 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 The entire inside of this building is fucking kindling. So its fireproof status is moot. Who gives a shit if the outside survives? I mean, the insurance company, but that's well, about it. that's yeah. a side story that we'll get into at another time. Mm-hmm. There is no sprinkler system, which had actually no. started to become customary at this time, but it wasn't mandatory at this time. Nor Neither were fi- fire escapes. Sounds expensive. <laughs> I don't have time for that. And they certainly weren't going to obviously like put them in after the fact once it had really become popular. So what was the answer for fire safety? Well, we're going to put these red buckets on the floor filled with less than a gallon of water and hope for the best. Mm. <laughs> Thinking that, you know, if someone, if a fire starts in here, you're going to see it right away and you're just going to throw out a bucket on it. It's going to be fine. 
Right. Solid. Great. Sure. That'll do it. By 1911, Ugh. you have 600 women and about 100 men. There are 60 employees on the 10th floor where the offices, the packing room, and the showroom were located. You've got 225 employees on the main cutting room, and that's the 8th floor that I mentioned. And then you have a large stock of material that is lightweight and flammable is all in there. And the 8th floor is where the fire starts, just so you guys know. So that is the most kindling of all of the floors. So the worst place for it to start, really. And also sure. because it's below other floors. So we also know from 9-11, that's the worst case scenario because it can block escape. Mm-hmm. And then you have 315 working at sewing machines on the ninth floor. So yeah, it's, it's like 600 people. Yeah. It's a lot of souls mm-hmm. in that one building. So this is building negligence, obviously. But then right. these two motherfuckers, Harris and blank, add to that with negligent business practices. Right. So as I already mentioned, we learned via evidence and testimony from survivors that there's every reason to believe that these doors were almost always locked during working hours. Mm-hmm. They deny this. And there are even some people who give testimony in court who flip flop and say, no, 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 they were never locked, probably because they were threatened or bribed or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I believe with all my fucking heart that these doors 100% were always locked during working hours. Right. And that is outlawed in New York State at the time for factories. So that wasn't even legal that they were doing that. It wasn't one of those things where it's like, eh, no one seems to care. No, it was a big fucking right. deal. Putting greed, putting greed over the safety and compliance with the law. Yeah. And it's so funny because when they're initially confronted about it after the fire, they say, because they're saying you did this purely to prevent theft from the women stealing shirts or materials or whatever. And they said, no, we wouldn't do that. If anything, we would lock the doors because we didn't want the girls to get in if they were late or to come back in from, from outside if they were and being late, not that we would do that because we aren't culpable. So there (laughs) it's like, what? (laughs) Cool. So either way, you're a dick. Yeah assholes another little hiccup in order to run these machines you need oil yeah you need a lot of oil you need to keep them lubricated yep there were two barrels of oil stored on both the eighth and the ninth floors yeah and it is reported that the floor underneath these barrels were pretty much always slick with oil greased so that's i believe great great Super state. And that's been going on in factories since factories have started. <laughs> you always you always need industrial grade lubricant, and that shit is always slicking on the wooden floor. I mean, listen. Ails all this time. I will never forget, not on the same level at all, but the day my brother, he was a toddler, and he got a gallon of my mother's olive oil and spilled it all over the kitchen. <laughs> it's hard oh. to keep oil in its place. Oh. A little spill? Holy shit. <laughs> oh, my God. It must have stunk. <laughs> they were slipping and slide like ice. It was like ice skating. It was a nightmare. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But this is obviously a far more serious situation because, you know, it's pretty fucking flammable. Yes, it is. Okay. I'm not smoking a cigarette, Betsy, while you're at the <sighs> popkin there. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, and here, that is a little, another little safety precaution they have in place at this point. Smoking is illegal in the factories. And to be fair, at this time period, also women don't really smoke 
it's not a fashionable thing. That really becomes no, only if they're trying to. That's get. a rebellious twenties woman thing. Mm-hmm. We guys mm-hmm. let you have your own cancer for far too long. It's our turn now. <laughs> 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 but uh, but men certainly do, and men were really good at sneaking it too. The cutters Ooh. on that eighth floor. Yeah, talking on one side of their mouth or the second. Yeah, they'd be smoking into their lapels or whatever. Oh yeah, so great. So under those cutters tables were huge bins where you would find cloth remnants, just scraps, paper, oily fucking soaked rags from sopping up oil from the machines, Mm -hmm. pretty much everything that (laughs) was discarded under these fucking, yeah, under these tables. Boxes of tissue paper, like for packing, also wooden crates with tissue paper. It's literally, it sounds like a bad movie. Right, it sounds like a cartoon. Yeah, like you like, like you're doing this on purpose to start a fucking fire. That's what it sounds like. And what's crazy? Super. <laughs> oh, this is the part that I didn't know and upset me the most. I, if I had to pick one thing, aside from there being paper everywhere and cloth everywhere, and there's patterns hung up overhead on wires. So also, if a little bit of tinder like just flies up, it's gonna catch all the shit that's in the air, <laughs> which is gonna fly everywhere as well. <laughs> It's a paper no. mess. And as a result, there actually had been a fire there in 1909. Mm-mm. But because it was so small and it was caught very quickly and someone just successfully threw one of those water buckets on it, the, it terrified the workers thinking, holy shit, this is bad. But the employers were like, see, our safety we're measures in- worked. We're in compliance. It's safe. We can handle it. And this is my other favorite safety measure that was in place. The factory owners did, I guess, to some extent, understand that this was a potential hazard um, because they did hire ragmen. Back to our jobs, Luke, our dirty jobs. Dirty jobs circa turn of the century now. (laughs) Their job was to clean up the floor. They take all the rags and shit and carted out of there <laughs> and uh depending on how much you had and how much you were willing to pay the ragman could come once a week to whatever the fuck they fucking felt like it yes uh-huh. what i read in terms uh, of the last no. time the ragman came before the fire on march 25th january Ooh, so a quarterly ragman quarterly they're making again thousands of shirt waists per day i can't yeah. even imagine what that cutting room looked like and and that's the thing <laughs> i'm gonna man bash now the eighth floor was mostly the men and it was the filthiest yes. fucking place in the whole <laughs> goddamn shop <laughs> so yes. it's no wonder the fire started there that's right that's right and no one cares No No. one is watching and no one cares. Really, the only true attempts at reform come from the worker themselves when they strike in 1909. There is a huge citywide garment workers strike that happens. Good for them. Good for them. It was actually pretty successful uh, for some factories and got better pay Mm -hmm. and better hours. And even those two bastards kowtowed at a certain point and said, all right, we'll give you your hours and we'll give you your pay. But this will never be a closed shop 
And we will never allow a union in these wars. We will never let you unionize. And so they had no collective bargaining. They had no union to protect them. They had no one. You have a backlash as a result of the movement, which makes sense. They had no one to protect them. And that's where I'm going to leave it for now. Okay. Yeah. So on the Eva Eva disaster. Eva disaster. So I would like to talk a little bit more about the strike next week as well, because it does give you a good sense again of just not just the neglect of these men, but how unscrupulous they were in terms of the way they treated the women during their striking. They had no problem making sure these women were beaten to near death for what they were doing. These these are monsters. I mean, truly. Mm-hmm. And and they are sadly a pretty common example of the day and age. And like a middling rung of corporate robber baron. That's the you know, thing. They're, they're, they're not even the biggest and baddies they're on the block. They're not. They are not yeah. an Andrew Carnegie. They are not, you know, a Morgan. They're not. Like mm-hmm. they're just, mm-hmm. and yet the amount of lives they're capable of ruining. And how much that pain is localized to whether it's a factory of 10 or 100. Yeah. You felt that evil because the the ends justified the means. The, the profit and loss sheet dictates that this is how we can operate. <sighs> it's brutal. Yeah. Mm. Sadly, guys, the worst of the story is yet to come. But we're going to pause on that. And um, I hate to do this to you guys. I'm leaving you with a real cliffhanger. But I am going away next week. So we are going to have a Patreon that comes out, a Patreon, a Patreon that comes out in between these two episodes. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Please don't hate me. Thankfully, you have paid time off because we live in a, in a modern, Thank somewhat equitable very society. Much. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for your labor laws. But I will be back. There will be more in two weeks. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. All right, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Morbid Museum Podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Get the latest on Instagram and TikTok at The Morbid Museum. Get in touch with us at themorbidmuseum at gmail.com. Consider becoming a supporter of our podcast by joining us on Patreon. Become an official Morbuddy today. Until next time, we'll see you for another gallery talk inside The Morbid Museum Podcast. Bye. Bye.